Lily, you may think that as a freelancer, a job site would not be for you. Yeah, but I've just been having a look on Cision Jobs. And actually on that website, you can search for freelance and part-time opportunities. And you can also select for homeworking. Oh yeah, the search lets you look within PR or journalism jobs and then by sector, salary, job title and hours. Yeah, there's loads on there. So go and have a look. It's scissionjobs.co.uk. Hello and welcome to Freelancing for Journalists. I'm Emma Wilkinson. And I'm Lily Cantor. So this is our eighth series of the podcast now and we're changing up our usual format a bit. Um, And we're going to talk to freelance journalists who have experience of writing books. Yes, this is our summer read special and we will be asking how do you get book deal? What is the writing process? And lots of other practicalities of writing, whether it's fiction or non-fiction. So if you've ever wanted to know more about how you move into writing books as a journalist, as well as picking up some handy tips, then you are in the right place. Yes, and today we're speaking to Chris Stoker-Walker, a freelance journalist who specialises in digital culture. He's written for The Times, Economist, Wired, Guardian, BBC and many others. Chris has written books on both YouTube and more recently TikTok. His book, TikTok Boon, China's Dynamite app and the superpower race for social media was published last year and it charts the rise of the app and what it means for digital culture, society and the economics of content creation. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks. Excited to have you here. (laughs) Yeah, it's brilliant to be here. Um, So can you, I guess, a good starting place is if you could outline sort of how the book came to be. So I started reading this book. I think I'm right in thinking that you were initially one of those, perhaps like Lily and I, who didn't really get TikTok maybe, but that all changed at a conference that you went to. So can you tell us about that and how you went about pitching the idea for the book? Yeah, so um, I was at an online video conference called VidCon, which is huge in the YouTube community. Um, And it was the first time that I had come to London in 2019 um, in those kind of pre-pandemic days when we actually used to go and interact with people in person and um I kind of I went there in part because I had a book that had just come out about YouTube and I thought that was a really good place to be and also it was useful for kind of my reporting to make contact with all these digital creators these YouTubers and people that I thought would be very very relevant to me and um I was at the conference and had just hosted a, a Q&A session with a, a pretty big YouTuber and was looking for somewhere to sit down because I was kind of exhausted from doing that. As you know from moderating these sorts of podcasts, they're, they're quite challenging on the brain and things like that. So um, a friend of mine who was a, an academic studying YouTube said, well, why don't we go and sit um, at this panel discussion about this thing called TikTok? Um, and I was like well fine whatever I heard a little bit of TikTok but hadn't really paid much attention didn't really care and was more looking for a comfy chair than anything else and so um she dragged me along and you know the thing that I found really fascinating by it was that the whole of this conference was kind of you know 
teenagers, young adults, and to a certain extent, kind of industry people all sat together conversing. And at the TikTok panel, it was like literally seven, eight, nine, ten year olds, completely different audience. And they were hugely uh, enthralled by the people that they were watching. And it kind of just got me thinking, oh, this is really interesting. Like if that generation of people can be so enamored by these people, it's worth keeping an eye on. And, and so I kind of did and um, realized relatively soon after that TikTok was something I'd encountered before in a previous guise. So um, there was an app called Musical.ly that was really popular in kind of 2017 that I profiled the creator of for Wired um, right when it was so popular that the whole servers behind it blew up. And I thought, oh, actually, there's, there's potentially like, uh, you know, I should follow this, given that I had access in some way at the ground floor of it. And so it became really popular. I started pitching ideas around it, I pitched actually the book about it um, when I started seeing it building momentum and the publisher said no initially and then just kept plugging away. TikTok became more popular and then eventually, and I think we'll get on to this, the, the book ended up coming into existence the publisher said yes and, and we the rest is history I suppose. It's interesting there that you talk about um, your contacts because something I was interested in is um, obviously you, you had to speak to a lot of people in the book um, and I mean did you have any problems getting people to speak about it um, and did you feel that your sort of journalistic background almost helped you get a a foot in the door with with gathering that information from people yeah enormously early and I think that that's kind of you know both of my books so far have come out of iterative reporting um in the sense of like you know I will be interested in a phenomenon a site a platform whatever it is um will do kind of you know maybe a 600 word or an 800 word story on it you know build up a few contacts with their then we'll probably do like a, a longer mid-rent feature on it, build up more contacts, talk to more people, do several stories around the broader space. And, you know, suddenly I've got 10, 12, 15 contacts. You do multiple ones of those, you build it up to kind of 50 or more, and then you start to go, well, actually, like, is this sustainable as a narrative and of interest for like a 60, 70, 80,000 word piece of narrative nonfiction and you know lots of them you go no but some of them you go yeah actually it is and, and you know, when you talk about YouTube or you're talking about TikTok kind of like world changing platforms it's yeah it's easy to say with hindsight but it is a little bit of a no-brainer. And did with this one did you have that sense from the beginning that there was probably enough to say here um, about TikTok or was it in those when you were doing those bits of reporting that you kind of cemented that idea? Yeah, so, I mean, it, it, it wasn't, uh, it's fair to say, Emma, that it wasn't like that, that wasn't a Damascene conversion of like, I didn't know about TikTok and didn't care about TikTok. And I went to VidCon and suddenly I was like, I'm going to write a book about it. But what happened was, you know, that was kind of March 2019, February, March 2019, um, I started doing a little bit more on TikTok kind of the spring of 2019 in terms of stories and thinking, oh, maybe there's something there. But we, you know, we're all journalists. We all cover trends and know that some of them fizzle out. 
I started talking more to kind of TikTok PR in the summer of 2019, and they were kind of mentioning, you know, what their plans were for the business, how they envisaged it growing. And you kind of get a hunch, particularly, I guess, as a tech reporter, you see so many apps and services come and go, and you hear so many kind of, you know, pictures of we're going to be the next big thing that you become inured to it. And I could see that for all that, the, you know, the PRs were giving me the hard sell about what they plan to do, that there was kind of like a nugget of relevance here. And, and you know, the big thing I think was um, your know, books take a long time to write. And um, you know, that's one of the most frustrating things that I found as a journalist who went into writing books is the timescales are entirely different. And convincing both an agent and then a publisher that the thing that you're writing about will still be around in, you know, if you're talking about the speediest that you're going to turn a book around is probably like a year and a half. Um, that's a big ask to get someone to spend that time, effort and money on. Convincing them that TikTok was a big thing was something that took a little bit of time. But in my mind, I knew that it was going to be big because I could see what what was different about it and also what the plan from the company was to make it big. Yeah, and you touch on there the kind of difference between um, writing pieces of journalism, like you say, that a quick turnaround and then this kind of long form, which takes much longer. Um, but when it comes to actually sitting down and writing a book, is your process any different to if you were writing, you know, a feature or a long read? It's truthfully for me, it's not. And that is something that I think probably my editor curses. And this is why I'm not always the best example of this. I, I teach journalism at Newcastle Uni and um, it, it's, I have to explain that the way that I work is often quite idiosyncratic um, because I don't even for kind of features, I don't necessarily plan out a structure per se. Like I don't, I don't sit down and get a bit of paper out or open a word document and say, this is how my story is going to evolve. I just write and then shunt things about and it works with a book when you're talking, you know, 60, 80,000 words rather than 600, 800 or a thousand or whatever, though that shunting becomes much more significant and much more frequent and as you get further into writing a book it becomes more and more of a headache because you realize that you've got everything in the wrong place but you know I I had kind of a rough outline very broad brush of like what I thought the narrative should be of the book and truthfully I borrowed a lot of that from my book on YouTube which my editor helped with an awful lot because I had no idea how to write a book the first time I did it um, and then I just started writing chunks of it. So I would just write a paragraph. So, you know, the, the opening chapter is how I first encountered TikTok. And, you know, I just wrote that scene as a chapter of VidCon, basically how I explained it to you. That's a chapter. I assume that will be at the front, but maybe not. Then I knew that I had this interview with Alex Zhu, who was the, the founder of Musical.ly. I knew that that had a lot of color, a lot of interest. So then I knew, right, that that's a chapter from 2017. That will go somewhere. And then I look at kind of other key moments in the history of TikTok and also some kind of general chapters about 
the impact on society, the impact on music, the impact on all of us, and think, well, can I build a chapter around that and just write the chapters and then you know start to try and weave them together maybe as I'm writing them in that they'll have like a you know, one chapter will end in with a kind of cliffhanger that will be paid off in the next. Um, but often it's kind of writing these chapters as like discrete things and then figuring out afterwards how to shunt them all together. You, you mentioned there about uh, kind of the impact on society. And I was interested because that must have been changing over this time period because there were countries that started to look at banning TikTok and you know there became kind of political conversations around it so did you end up having to write about things in the book that you hadn't expected when you started because actually those things were evolving at during the time you were writing it yeah I didn't I didn't expect to um one of the weirdest moments it's not actually in the book as like a bit of reporting but just like I remember distinctly one Saturday afternoon uh, logged on to a US, I think it was Washington DC district court uh, Zoom hearing while ironing my underwear, like like in my spare room, like and just thinking this is a ridiculous thing. Like I, I didn't, yeah, I didn't, I didn't set out to write a book about TikTok expecting that the world's most powerful man would place it as public enemy number one in his presidential re-election campaign. I didn't expect that. Um, the company might go out of business and be forced to close right as I was finishing off the book. I guess the you know, the one thing that was great about that was it gave a reason for the book to exist. It gave more of a kind of narrative hook for it and an interest in it. Um, and the blessing was that you know, as a journalist and being used to quick turnaround stories, I didn't panic too much. I mean, I did, I did panic. Don't get me wrong. Like the, the moments where I went, well, do I have to scrap 20,000 words now that I've written, assuming one thing and actually something else entirely is happening. Um, but you kind of, you know, as a journalist, that things are fluid and you just adapt. And it was great in some ways, because as I was reporting iteratively on this for different publications, I was building new contacts. So, yeah, I had, um, you know, whistleblowers from inside TikTok who I hadn't previously made contact with talking to me because they were frustrated about the fact that they might lose their jobs. And suddenly you go, oh, great, I can fold some of that colour into the chapters that I've already written about the TikTok's past. Like, it, it was a blessing and a curse, I suppose, in equal measure. So it sounds like you were, you were doing your kind of normal freelance articles at the same time as writing your book. So how did you manage... To kind of juggle all of that because from our perspective kind of we've noticed you have a huge output in terms of the amount of content you put out so I mean how do you juggle all of that? I don't sleep uh, <laughs> is, is the long and the short of it Lily. no I mean so there are a few things that are really important to caveat um, to, to start with the first is I'm a 33 year old white man uh, in, in a long-term relationship with my girlfriend, but with no family, no kids, um, which makes a huge difference. You know, I, I can work late nights. I can do school runs. I can, you know, work through school runs. I, I don't have to, you know, deal with someone having a meltdown or whatever. And, like, it, it's important, I think, to acknowledge the privileged position that that kind of puts me in. Um, 
I also work just incredibly quickly and I have been doing this for like 10 years now. Um, and so, you know, over time, not only do you build up kind of contact lists and, you know, I, there are very few subjects that I write about that I couldn't think of someone immediately off the top of my head that I could get to answer the phone in half an hour, which is an incredibly lucky thing to do, but comes with time and experience. And then also, as I said, I just write really fast and work really fast. So, you know, like, don't get me wrong, there were, um, you know, issues and family things. So, for instance, you, know, you mentioned that I, I, I write and work a lot. Like I did, I think it was 366 stories in 2021, you know, and the book came out in June. So for about four months or so because um, obviously it needs to be published and printed and things like that. For about four months of that, I was writing, you know, full bore for sort of freelance work alongside the book. Um, but, you know, life does intrude in some way. So, you know, um, the end of 2021, uh, I lost my grandmother and I was caring for her uh, for, for several months. So, like, you know, things slowed down there. Um, but, yeah, it's just, it's a combination of, like, experience and the more that you do things the quicker you get really good contacts um and that idea of like you know maybe 30 percent of the stuff that a lot of other journalists feel like they have to do in terms of planning out a story and its structure i just don't do and it's i don't know how to kind of explain that to people and i feel quite guilty about saying that sometimes is like you know that I can just write and somehow comes it out like semi-lucid, which is great. But yeah, I mean, the answer was just working a lot. And um, it helped that a lot of the, the story writing was on a similar topic to the book. Um, but also I enjoy doing what I do. And I think that's like, I hope that's one of the things that your listeners will feel. Um, like this is the best job in the world. <laughs> Like you get paid to essentially ask world experts about different things and you learn something new every day. And I genuinely don't see it as a job, which is why I work so hard. Like I've always, as a freelancer, had something else on, whether it was a full-time job for the first kind of seven years of my freelance career, a part-time job for the last three of various types, like, or a book going on at the same time. Yeah, it's that kind of ask a busy person if you want something done because they'll find a way to to fit it in. And I'm very much like you, Chris. And when I write a feature, I don't plan any features. I don't, I don't plan. I have very few systems other than kind of the basic ones that I need for keeping track of invoicing and income, etc. Um, but I wonder when you're doing something on this scale that is so much a, a bigger project. Um, how do you kind of make notes or keep track, especially if you're doing interviews that's perhaps for a feature, but then you're thinking, oh, I can fold some of this into the into the book. Do you have anything that you do differently when you're doing something as big as as big as the book and keeping track of the information that you're collecting as you're going along? Yeah, so I dump everything into a, a Dropbox folder. So I'm just looking at it now to try and help, you know, give a little bit of insight into it. So I have, um, you know, a folder that has, that's titled interviews that has every folder in it and in that interviews folder there's a every subfolder for every interview that I've done you know multiple people um have several ones um some of them you know in the 
the title of the folder it kind of says you know whether it's on background or on the rec off the record or on the record or whatever um i have um a, bun a background information folder which includes you know, basically whenever i came across an interesting news story or an interesting report about TikTok that's been produced by maybe like a market research agency or something. Um, you know, I would put that in there. Um, I have kind of a folder for just the text of the book with different chapters. Um, and actually, truthfully, I have kind of before that V1, V2, V3 um, subfolders as well. So it's about trying to keep organized, but a lot of it, again, like you, Emma, I think a lot of it lives in my head, um, which is really, really good in one way. But it's also, I'm also very, very worried sometimes that like it falls out of my head. <laughs> and that's the concept. Can you, you, you talked about this earlier, but can you tell me a bit more about how you actually convince the publishers then to to go with this book was it a case if you keep going back to them or did they kind of just sit on it until the time was right yeah so I mean to tell the story I probably have to rewind I think four years to kind of 2018 so or maybe five I don't remember which I went to um a conference called Well Told that is run by a guy called Giles Wilson, who used to be at the BBC. He was their head of features for many years. And he, he ran like the UK's first long form journalism conference in London, either in 2017 or 2018, I don't remember which. Um, and there was a, a panel about journalists producing books there. And the person that ran the publishing company that has published both my books to date was on that. And the panel discussion kind of got me interested in the idea of writing a book. I came up with the idea for YouTubers, which was my first book, pitched it to, I didn't realize how publishing worked. Um, so I just pitched it direct to publishers, which doesn't really work very well. They all ignored me. I then emailed this publisher because he was running a relatively small independent publisher um, and said, look, I've got this idea. And I did what you're not really meant to do, which is um, I wrote the first book without an agent or anything like that. So it was just a direct agreement between me and the publisher. Um, and after, and it worked out well for me, actually, really well. Um, after that, I got an agent who essentially um, you send ideas for books to, they then distribute them through their contacts at different publishers and they report back as to whether or not this person or that person was interested. So I pitched them the idea of um, TikTok um, actually after I had informally approached the publisher that did YouTubers and the publisher that did YouTubers, Canbury Press, initially said no. They didn't think that it would... Uh, be popular enough for long enough to do it. But then um, my agent repitched them a couple of times and obviously circumstances changed in that TikTok became really popular, which is a blessing because then it meant that actually they came back and they said, well, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll take it on and we'll do it. And so that's kind of how it happened. It was just persistence and basically you're trying to convince someone that something is a big deal and I think um as someone who's covered digital culture a lot 
of like, you know, these things that are, they start off niche and then they become really huge. Um, I've, people have started to trust when I say, actually, you should pay attention to this thing because in the past I've turned out to be correct on some of them. Um, and so there is an element, I think, of trust there. But yeah, it was a lot of persuasion, basically, in, in happy circumstance. And do you think it it must help you having this kind of specialism, this niche, because you've uh, a publisher, like you say, is kind of taking a chance on you, but they can see the writing that you've done. They can see the experience that you've got in this area and the contacts that that you have. You know, how much do you think that kind of helped pushed it over the line that that you know you had the specialism in digital culture oh hugely and i mean you know if i stopped and decided to write a book about politics you know I, I, nobody in their right mind would take it because i don't i don't have the expertise in that whereas you can say you know i do you know, particularly um in the late 2010s there weren't lots of digital culture journalists in the UK. It's become much better now and it's really, really good. And it's a vibrant growing sector of the media industry. But back then, you know, I, I probably could genuinely count the number of freelancers that were writing stuff on that subject for major publications on one hand. Um, and so it, yeah, you kind of become, there, there's, I'm loath to go into it too much because the, there's a group of academics who got into a bit of a tiff with a bunch of digital culture journalists because they disliked that we were either styled or self-styled as digital culture experts. But you do kind of build up a reputation as a little bit of like a, if not an expert, as someone who has knowledge of how to sift the wheat from the chaff in a certain area. So yeah, I mean, it, it was enormous help. and continues to be but it's a frustration at the same time because you get pigeonholed and people say well you can only write about instagram or tiktok or youtube and you can't write about all the other things that i do write about because i do write about quite a lot so i mean in the process of this book you must have learned a huge amount about tiktok um i mean do you have any particular views yourself and have they changed like Emma and I were talking about this earlier that, you know, we've got freelancing for journalists, TikTok channel, but we're not really sure what we're doing with it. We're not really that keen on TikTok. I think we're not the right demographic necessarily. Um, so we're just wondering really, what, what do you think of TikTok now and has that changed since you've written the book? Yeah, I mean, I think it's obviously huge now, isn't it? And I, I, think, um, I think TikTok has changed a lot, um, both in terms of the type of content that's become popular and also um, internally within the company. So, you know, we take the latter first really briefly. Um, you know, it's, um, its parent company is Chinese owned. You know, it's that's been litigated, almost literally litigated for years now. Um, and, you know, for some people that will be an insurmountable issue for it that that means that you know, nobody should ever use it. For others, it's not a big deal. Um, and you know, the company itself, the attitudes that you know permeate through the company used to be of a certain kind of very censorious, very controlled nature. It's become much more westernized, particularly obviously in, in the West, you know, kind of 
goes hand in hand. There are still major issues with it. You know, um, Christina Criddle uh, for the Financial Times recently reported in the last couple of weeks about kind of issues uh, with working culture at TikTok, which sound very familiar to a lot of things that I've heard about it um, in terms of as a very work first Chinese, you will sacrifice everything to the benefit of the company culture when actually, you know, people want maternity leave, things like that. Um, but the app itself has changed enormously in large part because of what TikTok wanted. Um, you know, I, one of the things that I've found really interesting about TikTok is they have learned from the mistakes of their predecessors, both in terms of like policy decisions, but also in terms of how they deal with the press. Um, you know, I, I wrote a book on YouTube and a book on TikTok. I have interviewed TikTok's UK managing director multiple times. I managed to interview him two days before Christmas at, I think, a day's notice. Um, I haven't had that kind of access with YouTube. And I guess it's a team, uh, it's kind of a an issue for TikTok in that, like, that works both ways, in that, you know, um, it, it potentially gives them the ability to try and um, present what they want, but also and it kind of backfired a little bit for them, I think, in that like you know, they gave me lots of access and then that means that I know how the company works. It means that I know to ask the right questions of the people that they don't connect me with, but the people that I know within TikTok that, that can tell me things. Um, and so, you know, one of those meetings with TikTok's UKMD, he said, you know, we're going to age up our user base. It's currently mostly teenagers. We want it to age up. And that was December 2019. Turns out they did um, really, really rapidly. Um, and you know now a huge proportion of TikTok's users are middle-aged people. And with that, the content's changed. It's it's much more, you know, quote unquote mainstream, I suppose. So yeah, loads has changed with TikTok over the last few years. And it's exciting to see where it's going to go as well. Yeah, I mean, I've uh, got another question for you around the sort of mechanics of the book kind of publishing process. What was expected of you in terms of promotion? Was there any discussions around how the book would be promoted and, and what you had to do? And also on the back of it, have you have you then been asked to be the expert on TikTok that goes on kind of radio, TV, other places to, to, to talk about um, what you know about it? Yeah, so I mean, this is this is one of the things that I think people don't really necessarily talk about that much um, around books, which is they might not sell loads. I don't actually know the sales figures of my book uh, decisively, but you know, like you think that you're going to sell tens of thousands and become incredibly rich, and you don't. But what you actually do get is that kind of imprimatur of being like a, a legitimate voice. You know, I'm. I'm not really any different in terms of my expertise from before publishing the book and after it, but now people say, oh, you can talk about TikTok. Yeah, as you say, come on our radio show, or, you know, can we do an interview with you? Or, um, you know, could you write this story for us on TikTok? And it kind of, it means that you get um, additional income beyond the book, not from the book. Um, yeah, I've done talks at conferences about YouTube, for instance, um, that were probably 
you know, in total better paid than the amount that I got from the actual book itself in terms of sales. Like it's, it's kind of fascinating to see in terms of promotion. Um, I, you know, the, the publisher that I, I've written my books for have been relatively small. Um, I went in very proactively. The, the, the one thing that my publisher says that's nice about me, probably says a lot of horrible things about me behind my back, but the one thing that he says that's really nice is that I'm indefatigable in terms of my willingness to promote the book. Um, so, you know, I went to him with kind of like a, a list of uh, potential publications that might be interested in covering it. I got the names of the editors and the emails. I came up with kind of a media plan for it. I did you know, polling that I knew could become a standalone news release that could go out to news desks around you know, the number of proportion of people that trusted TikTok in the UK, in the US, in India. And we got kind of coverage off the back of that. And I basically planned out like day by day what I wanted my books, media um, strategy to be. Um, which was partly because I like that sort of stuff and I'm keen on that sort of stuff, but also partly the publisher that I work for is relatively small. And so a lot of that responsibility probably had to fall on me. Yeah, I think that really resonates with our experience actually as well of, of the freelancing for journalist textbook. It's like we may diddly squat from the book, but um, it's just spun off into lots of different areas which, which do um, generate income. And um, just kind of one other question really around the, some of the mechanics as well is obviously you've written the YouTube book and the TikTok um, book now. Um, was your process different at all? Did you learn anything from writing the YouTube book or, you know, that you then perhaps brought into the second book? I think I got better at writing a book rather than... Like my, my book, both of my books are very journalistic. Um, there was a lot more hand-holding in the first because you know, my publisher, who, who's a really, really good, has a really good editor as well. Um, and he's a former journalist himself. You know, he says, um, when we started doing the first book, he said, a lot of journalists, when they start writing books, think that they just have to write 20 or 30 medium length features and that's a book and they think that that's how you do it is you just write a feature and that's a chapter and you write another feature and that's a chapter and they don't think about kind of the broader narrative or, or things like that um and I think that's what I did in my first book is just write a load of chapters um the second one, I started thinking a little bit more about kind of structure and tone and voice and how to make it distinct as a book rather than a collection of uh, features. So I kind of, you know, I learned a lot from that. Um, I guess also record keeping a little bit more, um, not for any bad reason, but just because, you know, you might get asked by your editor to expand on a section and you go, oh, I can't remember where I got, you know, who's the best person to talk, who's the best person to speak to this and do I have that information to hand um, and being able to go back and look at that. It was much easier with the TikTok one just because of the way that I kind of structured stuff um, in terms of like file structures and storage and so on and so forth. 
Fantastic. That's all very practical advice. I'm making quick notes of all of this. Um, we like to close, finish an episode by asking for your top tip on uh, getting published. But I'm going to actually ask you for two top tips because I, I want to ask you also, as well as your advice for kind of getting published um, or sort of grabbing the attention of a publisher, I also want to ask you, how do you spot that subject that's worth writing about and get there before anybody else does? Yeah, I think um, in terms of how to get published, I think you know, the way to do it is to try and get representation. So first of all, try and get an agent. And you know, there are a lot out there. Some of them are really good. Some of them are probably really bad. Um, you know, get an agent because it it kind of it does half the job for you in that people take you much more seriously if you come through an agent rather than if you just cold pitch them. Um, and then, you know, making the argument as to why this matters and remembering that people um, are, the people that are involved in deciding whether or not a book should be published are ultimately looking at the bottom line and they're looking at this from a business attitude and making sure that you convince them of the size of the audience so you know the way that i did it on youtubers and tiktok was um you know if i interview enough people with large enough audiences hopefully a fraction of the audiences of those people will be interested enough in that person to buy a copy of the book um, and you know that's like a, you know, they can look at that and they can do the math. They can say, well, this person has, you know, hundred thousand subscribers. This person has a million subscribers. If that, you know, creator mentioned the book or a word got around that that creator was in the book and X percent of people bought it, then you know that's how we can break even on the book or, or make money on the book. Uh, in terms of like finding the idea that's going to make a book I think it's to a similar level what you do with a story is that you have to convince someone else not just yourself that it's worthwhile telling that story and I think the added complication or the added challenge when you're doing a book is that you know you have to not just convince a newspaper editor that this is going to be important tomorrow or a magazine editor that this is going to be important in with the, you know, the lead time of a magazine three or four months time, but you have to convince them that it's going to be important in a year or two's time as a book publisher. And you know, that uh, generally means that tech books are hard. Um, and you know, one, one of the reviews uh, that I got for TikTok Boom was by Sarah Munivis in the New Statesman who, who said, you know, as far as I can tell, I mean, she didn't necessarily come out either way as to whether or not she really liked the book or really didn't. Uh, it was kind of an agnostic review. But one of the things that she said is there's an issue with all books like this around tech, which is that tech moves really fast and publishing moves really, really slow. And, you know, it was kind of, I think it was because, you know, one, a few of the stats or, or something were outdated. And it's kind of like you have to be conscious of that and try and find something that's a little bit more timeless rather than timely, or if you're going to go for the kind of urgent, pressing, recent thing, to make sure that the bet that you make is correct and that it will hang around 
for longer than you think it will um, and still be relevant by the end of all the effort. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a really good piece of advice, actually, is it's that timelessness, that evergreen content and so much more so than than a, a news article or a feature. Oh, well, thank you so much. That's been really fascinating and some really excellent pieces of advice there. And we're really looking forward to seeing what you do next. And don't forget, yeah, if you've got, we didn't actually ask you if you've got another book in the uh, in the pipeline, if you've got the energy to do another one. I do. I want, I want to do one. I mean, I want to do one on um, how our education system is failing us to set us up for the careers of tomorrow, particularly around like online creators. Everybody's a creator now and mm. nobody has any idea how to do taxes. So you know, things like that, um, you know, how to deal with fame on the internet, how to do your taxes, all of that stuff. Oh, that's really, yeah, I was listening to a podcast a bit about that the other day. It's a really interesting topic and quite timely, I think, post, post-pandemic. post um, That's it for today. Don't forget you can find out more about us and all of our resources at freelancingforjournalists.com. You can come and join our Freelancing for Journalists Facebook community and meet our, I think, 5,400 people that we have in there now. Yeah, that's about right. On social media, we're at Freelancing4. Um, we are on TikTok. We will try and get that a bit more regular, I think, now we've uh, been inspired today. On Twitter, I'm at Lily Cantor. And I'm at Emma Journo. And as always, big thanks to our research assistant, Helen Quinn, and our producer, Maddie Drury. And there'll be another episode along next week. But goodbye for now. Bye.